Welcome to the Curling for Change podcast. My name is Will Robertson, and I will be your host for this limited series. Brought to you by Curling Canada and sponsored by the World Curling Federation. Without further ado, let's get right into today's discussion. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Curling for Change podcast. My name is Will Robertson, and this conversation is BIPOC Curlers Changing the Face of Curling. With us today, Johnson Tao, Jackson Eber, Deb Martin, Kibo Malima, and we're going to have a conversation about what it is to be BIPOC in curling, what it is to be in the community in curling, and some of the issues we face with diversity, equity, and inclusion in curling, but also hearing some of their stories, some of their lessons, and some things that we can learn from them going forward. And so I know it's going to be a really impactful conversation. I'm really excited for it. Um, and just so everybody is on the same page, BIPOC does stand for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Um, for those of us in the international audience who may be watching this, A, welcome, and B, I hope that this conversation also resonates with you. So I'm going to have our guests all introduce themselves. Um, Kibo, would you like to start? Sure. Uh, so, as Will mentioned, my name is Kibo Malima. Um, I am a young Black individual of African descent. Um, I'm a second year student at Wilfrid Laurier University right now, uh, competing uh, as part of the as part of the curling program there, um, as well as competing in the under twenty stream. And if I didn't say it already, I'm very happy to be here today with such a great group. Yeah, thank you, Kibo, and, and welcome, um, Deb. Go ahead. Yes. Um, so my name is Deb Martin. I am, I think, the only representative American curler on the panel today and also the only female, I believe. <laughs> so um, uh, I started curling about uh, 13 years ago um, and I have, I'm a member of the Plainfield Curling Club. I play what I would say amateur aspirational curling. Um, I do dabble a bit in the competitive space with club playdowns and club nationals here in the States, but I am very much not part of the high performance curling team. I am what we would call an enthusiast and enthusiastic amateur. So <laughs> and I'm happy to be here as well. Yeah, thank you, Deb, and, and we're grateful for your perspective and the conversation. Johnson, go ahead. Uh, thanks, Will. Uh, my name is Johnson Tao. I'm from Richmond, BC, uh, originally from Beijing, China, and I curl out of the Savile Community Sports Center in Edmonton under the University of Alberta's curling program. Uh, currently, I skip both Team Canada for the upcoming 2024 World Junior events and the Alberta Golden Bears uh, University team. And on top of that, I'm also involved with Curling Canada uh, as, as part of their scholarship selection panel for the For the Love of Curling uh, scholarship program. Thank you, Johnson. And anybody looking to apply for the For the Love of Curling scholarship, I'm a past recipient of this. I think a few of us are. Um, please do apply for it. Look into it. It's a great program. And, and thank you to Curling Canada for supporting young athletes in that way. Jackson, last but certainly not least, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, my name is Jackson Hebert. Um, I'm actually originally from the States as well. I was um, kind of adopted from birth. So I'm originally from Charleston, South Carolina. And yeah, I currently live in Sherwood Park, Alberta. Um, for me, I am skipping a U20 team this year. I'm still 16, so I get to um, compete in U18s and U20s, but kind of primarily at U18 and U20 team again this year. So yeah, super excited to have this conversation. Looking forward to it. 
So for those at home, Jackson describing his age to me is still shocking because I played against him in U18s like five years ago, <laughs> six years ago. Yeah, like 2019. It was it was a while ago. Good. Firstly, good for you for starting that young, and, and secondly, you know, good luck to all of you who are who are curling this season as well. I think all of us are. Um, so let's get right into this conversation. So my first question for everybody is how did you come to the sport of curling? Um, Deb, do you, do you want to start off? Sure. I actually would like to start off with a question to Jackson before I dive into my story. Did you discover curling before or after you left the States? Just wondering. Uh, I was before. I was uh, ah, adopted okay. kind of at birth. Or sorry, after my bad. I was, after, um, okay. yeah, because my parents, so, yeah, I was adopted kind of adverse so yeah I okay. was pretty young when I first found it over yeah when I moved to Canada uh, I was hoping that you'd say you discovered it here that's I'm just I'm always uh mining for the pathways that people find into the sport so um not to digress just selfish selfishly taking those notes myself um I started curling in 2010 after I was exposed to the Vancouver Olympics uh, that were broadcast in a unique way here. I think it was time zone friendly. It was also a good amount of bandwidth uh, network wide was dedicated to curling that year. They had dedicated like most of the MSNBC programming stream to the uh, curling, the sport of curling and some other maybe, I guess, boutique sports, if you will. Um, and I just started watching it and I, I don't think I'd ever really noticed it before and if I did it was sort of anecdotal but this year for some reason it sort of captured my imagination and I was really fascinated by what I saw going on the commentary and the discussion so I hit google and found out that I'm about 15 minutes away from the only dedicated curling club in New Jersey and the rest is kind of a wrap I went to the open house tried it out was terrible and um, <laughs> wrote a check, became a member, and I have been an avid curler ever since. So that was really my first entree into the sport. And from the minute I found it, I loved it. It's been a love affair ever since. That's that's really interesting. Thank you. I, I think I think a lot of people can relate to that to some degree from the Vancouver Olympics angle. Like I remember being ten, <laughs> watching oh. the Vancouver. Oh, you're killing me! <laughs> yeah, I, I was ten watching the Vancouver Olympics, and I remember uh sorry Cheryl I remember the silver medal um and you know watching watching that Olympics really closely because it was a different feeling I think it was one of the last Olympics that like a lot of people really like closely paid attention to in Canada because of its impact like here and how, how huge it was um but that, that might have been a, a, an entry point for a lot of folks um Kibo yeah, I I would say here in the States, just as an aside, our, I call it my freshman class, my Vancouver bounce freshman class is one of the largest cohorts that mm -hmm. is still in curling. Like, you know, that year was significant, not just for me, but for a lot of people. And I'm not really sure why, but we haven't had a bounce as significant and as sustained in terms of retention of people that started in that year. I don't have facts and figures to back it up, but it's just anecdotally, I know that had a lot of, it impacted a lot of people and it had a lot of staying power. And also I feel really old because you said I was 40 when I discovered it in 2010. So for all of you who can do math, I was like, what? Such babies. So yeah, that was, <laughs> I'm impressed that you, you were actually watching it. That's good. Yeah, for sure. And, and and thank you for that. I think that's really interesting. And, and hopefully someone watching, if you want an academic journal or paper to look into, maybe there's the subject we've just discovered for you. Yeah, I think that'd be great research. Absolutely. Um, Kibo, how did, how did you come to curling? 
actually just to jump on the the train here i for me it was the 2014 olympics that was the first time that i saw it which was crazy because i grew up in kingston and the scotty tournament hearts in 2013 was in kingston i didn't even know what the sport was at that point so um yeah i saw it in the olympics uh that was the year jennifer jones and brad jacobs represented canada um was really kind of just kind of like deb said you know a lot of the a lot of the channels you're seeing so many different sports oh what's this right um and so you know i think something that i really enjoyed about i've come to kind of realize as as i've gotten older is about how you know i remember the teams that were there that year and it's the same game, but just the personalities of the players and just how every team does it is just slightly different, right? So you get that opportunity to bring out a bit of kind of kind of uniqueness. Um, and and so for me, like Deb, I um, my mom checked out curling clubs in the area, um, tried it. Uh, remember falling down the first time I was on the ice for sure, <laughs> trying to slide. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. I was kind of at the tail end of that season and then um, kept with it, picked it back up the next year, uh, just at, uh, the Royal Kingston curling club here in Kingston. And I, I really enjoyed it. Like I wanted to be on the ice as, as much as, as I could back then it was kind of a, was a once a week thing. I remember when I was starting, um, for most of the juniors at our club, but, um, as I continued with it, I wanted to see, you know, how can I play this more, right? I want to curl more. I want to, I want to get better, you know, and, and looking for what the pathway was to do that. And, you know, there's a lot of fill in the blanks in between, but eventually I got into competitive curling um, and then um, just continued to try and stick with it and, and get better as much as I could. And here we are now. <laughs> For sure. It's, it's interesting how the sport hooks us that way sometimes. And uh, I think a lot of us can, can relate to that. Um, Jackson, how did, how did you come to curling? Uh, it's funny. Like, uh, so me, I remember watching the 2014 Olympics. I was only like, I think I was eight at the time and I had like the attention span of a leaf and like I hated crowding when I saw this I was like can we turn it off I did not want to watch this and then like it was the next year I used to be um a competitive gymnast when I was a lot younger and then like that I was starting to get more like I was driving into town every day so my parents kind of like we had stopped that and I was, they I was driving them crazy and they hate when I say this story but I was just driving them crazy and they're like hey we can see the rink from our house so they like we're going to try this and they put me in and then like kind of fell in love with it ever since then and I kind of always joke about it with my dad it was like a once a week thing back then and they're like oh this will be fine I'm like when we moved last year to curl and we're traveling all the way so I'm like he should have just kept me in that if you don't want to be that busy but yeah no that's kind of how I found it and it's just given like such a great gateway into so many opportunities in life so definitely happy I got to try it out. Yeah, for sure. And it's, I think, you know, curling has been a great, great way to, to opportunity for a lot, for a lot of folks. And so that's, that's really interesting to hear you say that as well. Um, Johnson, how'd you come to curling? Um, like Deb, I also came across curling for the first time at the Vancouver 2010 Olympics. Uh, but unlike Deb, I was uh, only seven years old at the time. Um, and uh, I live in Richmond, BC, just, uh, just south of uh, Vancouver. So uh, the event had a very big impact on uh, my area, my community, and a little bit of background about me. I'm from uh, Beijing, as I mentioned, um, and in China at the time, uh, curling was virtually unheard of uh, when my family and I lived there. And it wasn't until my family and I immigrated to Canada uh, when we first heard of curling. And so uh, I first saw curling at the Olympics when we first got uh, tickets to watch. And um, I, when I when we went to watch, I had no idea what was going on, uh, no idea what was happening. Uh, but I thought it looked cool. And 
the the energy of the crowd i remember was insane i still remember um the cheers and the chants to this day and i think it really left an impression on me and so uh two years later uh, i joined the junior program at the richmond uh curling club and uh rest is history yeah that's it's really interesting and in, in how sports can have an impact on us in that way you know especially you know, formative to, to coming to Canada and understanding our surroundings, but also, you know, finding something, something you love and something that resonates with you for, for a long time after that. So that's, that's an intriguing, intriguing uh, place to come from uh, to the sport. So, you know, uh, I, I wanted to ask this question, you know, as, as you got into curling, you know, how, how did you all feel in the curling club environment or in a curling tournament environment, you know, um, many of us have, have curled competitively. All of us have curled in curling clubs or in tournaments. How did you feel in those spaces? Um, Jackson, did you want to start? Yeah, for sure. Like for me, like growing up, I grew up in a super small town called Sexsmith, Alberta. So there's only like 3000 people. And it was like, um, like myself and then like my other adopted sister's black as well. And like maybe one or two other people so for me like it wasn't like uncommon for me to like be like one of the only black people at my school or things like that so like when I kind of like first started curling it didn't feel too much different but because that's kind of just what I grew up around so it was like it felt for me I was like they would open the rink anytime I wanted to so I always felt super welcomed and like you know definitely like as a kid it didn't feel like oh I like feel subjected because I, and I'm a person of color it just felt like they just wanted to help a person you know who just is a young kid who loves the game and like hopefully can give a shot at it so for me I've always felt pretty welcome I've been pretty fortunate for that yeah thank thank you um Kibo how, how have you felt in, in in the kind of curling space for from the beginning I yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't say I noticed the lack of diversity too much um from the beginning um but yeah it was more as I as I kind of got to know like how the people around me started curling a lot of it was through their parents which is yeah it's a good thing about curling that it's passed down through generations um but so i you know and then as i as i was hoping even just how do we how do i curl more right how do i really try and get better at this you know it was kind of um i didn't feel like i was trying to figure out that pathway was you know i it was it was a little unclear right um, and there were, you know, people who knew who'd been in the game a lot longer, but it was just kind of interesting to navigate. Um, and so as I got older, you know, for me, I've met, you know, so many great people through this sport. Um, but it, if even just a little in competitive curling, it fueled a little bit of that um, something in me that was like, you know, I started curling later than a lot of my peers, a lot of people I was playing with or against. Um, and whether I was younger or um, I just, I hadn't, I, whether I hadn't gotten into it the way a lot of people around me had, it kind of, you know, I want to kind of defy expectations. Like I want to, I want to, you know, get better faster. Like it really, you know, that bit of that fuel. Um, so uh, a little bit of that, uh, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. And I, I think that that drive to, not necessarily fit in, but that drive to achieve excellence within your space along with others is, is something that, you know, all of us can relate to in different parts of our lives and many others could as well. Um, from a totally different perspective, I moved to Ontario last year 
and curled competitively this past season, curled in New Brunswick for a very long time, but came here and I was like, I was the space alien with a New Brunswick flag on my, on my pants, right? Nobody knew me. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody really cared. Uh, and that's fine. Um, but it was, it was a very interesting space spending a season going to clubs I'd never been to meeting people I had never known um, and kind of navigating that, you know, tournament after tournament, week after week. Um, so I, I think a lot of people from a variety of perspectives can, can relate to some of what you spoke to. Um, you know, Johnson, how, how have you felt as you've, you've gone through, you've gone through a, a number of different curling communities. You spoke to the university side of things and the national side of things, international side of things. How, how, how have you, uh, felt in, in the, in curling spaces? Yeah, for me, I think I've been fortunate to not um, ever have to struggle with needing to feel like I need to try to fit in um, in the curling space. Um, from a demographic standpoint, I started curling at the Richmond Curling Club and uh, Richmond's a city, which is an immigrant hub and uh, where the vast majority of people are of Asian descent. So uh, when I first started, I was, you know, um, ethnicity wise, I was in the majority. And so uh, naturally, uh, curlers in my community came from all sorts of uh, cultural and ethnic backgrounds. And so it was a very inclusive, welcoming and diverse space uh, where I came from. And uh, obviously it's much uh, different in Edmonton where I curl now, uh, where the curling demographic is much less diverse. Um, at the University of Alberta curling program, I'm the only person of color there, uh, part of the program. But um, you know, as I've curled uh, in and around both uh, regions, uh, the curling communities I've been part of have um, always been incredibly welcoming and inclusive to me. and uh, and to me and both uh, both myself and the teams that I've been a part of. And so I've been fortunate to have uh, lots of uh, positive experiences uh, through my curling journey. Yeah, and, and, and that's, of course, it's encouraging to hear that, but also interesting to hear the, the geographical difference of, of diversity in curling from, as you spoke to, you know, British Columbia is a, is a hub for, for, for immigrants into Canada, but also some of our larger centers as well in Canada. But same can be said for the United States in a number of different areas that may be more diverse in, in, in terms of its scope of, of different folks coming from different backgrounds and, you know, kind of thinking that way as well, you know, Deb, did you, how, how did you feel when you came into the curling space at a different point of life than, than we had? How did you feel in that space? Yeah, like, so it's an interesting thing because I think there were a variety of, of feelings and just as I was taking on the experience, some of it was just being part of a new space at a, you know, and encountering a new group of people, a new space, a new culture around a sport in particular. But I'm always careful to remind people that, you know, at least as a woman living down here in a metropolitan area, even though I live in a very diverse part of the world, I would say diverse part of America even, um, it's not uncommon for me to spend time in spaces where I'm the only black woman or the only ethnically ambiguous woman or the only, you know, person who's non-white, you know, they don't necessarily always know exactly what I am, but they know I'm not white. So that isn't unique to the curling world. Like, so walking into the curling world was no different than going to a gym class or, you know, a corporate interview or something like that. So I try to remind people that while there is this, this, point of entry 
it's not the first time I've ever had to do that. My background is also one where I've spent a lot of time for whatever reason, playing non-traditional black sports, if you will. If, if there is such a thing as a black sport, if you wanna go straight to the stereotype, I've been a swimmer, I've been a rower. And for some reason, I've always had either a talent or an affinity for things that you would consider non-traditional for the black community. Um, so this isn't the first time. Now, when I was a swimmer, I was much younger, maybe closer to the age of my co-panelists here. Um, and I found that to be a bit more challenging because of where I was in my formative years and just kind of navigating that. But by the time I was a grown up and went into the curling world, I, it kind of was what I expected it to be. Everyone was always polite. Um, some clubs were more welcoming than others. Um, some places made it clear that I was unique in the space more than others. And nobody was particularly rude, but sometimes just the fact that they make it clear that you're different or they know you're an outlier is enough to remind you like, oops, you know, I guess I, I don't really blend as well as I thought I was. Um, but none of the experiences have been overtly negative. Some of them have been more challenging than others where there are those environments where you walk in and people just meet you where you are. They start chatting with you. You know, they get to know you as a person. And then there's environments that I've experienced where I walk in and they immediately start either trying to code switch or trying to meet me where they think I am. And they start speaking to me in like a vernacular that I can tell is not their vernacular. It is also not my vernacular, but they don't know that. So things like, Hey girlfriend, or sup, sup homie, like things like that, which is it, to me, it's almost like they tell on themselves that they feel like that's how they have to connect with me as opposed to just chatting me up as a person. So yeah, those are, but I mean, if that's the worst story I can tell you, I would say that's probably the most overt discomfort I've sensed in any of the spaces. But again, it's not the only space where I'm the only one like me. So I have a lot of muscle memory and quite a big callus around how to carry myself in those spaces. So to be honest, it's it's kind of, it's been the experience I've made it. I'll also say I didn't have to enter the space solo. My wife and I both joined together. So we always had each other um, and I would say her experience might be a little bit different than mine because she's more obviously black. You know, she's a brown skinned woman. Um, not that that's a big deal. It's just that colorism here in the States puts me in a different space than it would maybe put her. So I would say that like when she encounters those spaces, it might be slightly more um, off-putting initially for people or throw them off balance. And you can see it more in their response to her because she jumps out at them. Whereas mine is a little more stealthy, but it really comes down to the area of the country and um, the people that I'm with. And now that I'm a part of the community for so long and have been part of United We Curl and things like that, I'm almost like the opposite in terms of I stand out for all, all a whole bunch of other reasons. So now I couldn't tell you whether it's just being that I'm different or just that people kind of know who I am. And that puts them in a whole different space around diversity and me. So now I don't know if it's just me or it's just kind of like knowing the projects I've been involved with. But all in all, it none of it was off-putting enough to put me off the sport. So here I stand and I can't see myself not doing it for the rest of my life. So there you go. Must not have been too bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and and those are some really important points, Deb, as well. And, and I do want to, you know, folks watching, you know, know this, but for those listening, I am a cisgender white male who comes from a middle-class background in Atlanta, Canada. I have to place, I'm, I'm placing myself in that space in, in this conversation. And one thing I will say just as an anecdote in terms of the impact of why this conversation is very important to me is that as a curler in Atlantic Canada, I think I did not 
see a person of color involved in curling until I had been curling for almost a decade. And, and for some of our listeners from Canada and, and from other parts of the world, like, I just want to let that sit for a second. And, and one of the things that I, I would mention from, from my position of privilege is I never really thought about it deeply until then, right? I didn't think about what it meant or the impact that may have on other people or what that meant in terms of how inclusive or not the sport was or my community was or where I was, or perhaps how I was in, in that space in that time. Um, you know, the first time I, I, I saw a person of color at a competitive curling event, you know, Jackson was you at under 18 nationals. By the time I was turning 18, I'd been curling since I was eight. Right. Like I, I just want to let that sit for a second. And so, you know, I, I really appreciate you all bringing your story to this perspective. And I just wanted to make sure that folks listening at home hear, you know, the position of privilege that I and so many others come from in that sense, in that conversation as well of, Sometimes we don't think about that impact or about the why or how important that is until you are confronted with it in a way that, you know, sometimes we need to think about and, and ask questions about and, and why hadn't we thought about it before? Why hadn't I thought about it before I was, you know, 17, 18, starting to go to university and going, hmm, seems awful white out here, like particularly in Atlantic Canada at the time, like, you know, um, and, and so I, I just wanted to kind of set that place of privilege from where I'm speaking as well as, as, as part of, of my experience and, and how I think this, this conversation is really important. And I really appreciate your views from, from that question. Um, and speaking of your experiences, I, I wanted to see what an experience was for you in curling, for all of you, that was empowering, perhaps, and one that was disappointing to you in your curling experience so far. Um, Jackson, did you want to start? Yeah, uh, for sure. For me, I think um, it really just was like, after I'd went to those nationals, I'd kind of noticed like the guys getting a lot of recognition. I was like, oh, it's like, you know, I'm tall, like I'm from Alberta, it's cool, whatever. And so, but not to really realize until like I got like all these pictures of me like popping up on like oh I'm like the cover of the annual general medium like I don't even know I still don't even know what it is I don't look at that like I'll be completely honest but saw myself on all of these and it was like you know kind of at first like a joke and like whatever and then like I didn't make nationals last year and like I do not look the same as I looked when I was 12 but like I still kind of saw all these pictures coming up and like I remember when currently Canada started to do more like just make like the diversity stuff a little bit more aware and it was like you had like the pamphlets that you could put out at clubs and I didn't even know I was on that and things like that and I was the cover for diversity and that was like a big thing to be like showed around Canada and stuff because I would like saw myself in a rink I went so I was like ah, oh, I guess there's me but like I wasn't kind of like made aware of things like that so I think when I was like that has kind of been my struggles like I wanted people to know me for like because you know like for being a curler and like for having accomplishments and not just oh he's that one black kid from Alberta and like whatever he made a national that's cool so it was kind of really until like this year where I thought like I remember it was at U18 nationals and I saw like this article come out and I was like oh great another one of like my cover and stuff but 
wasn't until I read it and it was like, you know what, I was being acknowledged for like good curling and things like that. And it kind of felt like, okay, the work I've been putting in like the last couple of years, like I've been like busting it, trying to go and like, and I finally like felt like, okay, like maybe this is like, I am stepping in the right way. Cause there was for a while there was like, you know, what? I feel like I'm just doing this and yeah, I'm doing well, but I'm not getting acknowledged for the right reasons. And then finally I kind of was like, it was in the middle of U18 nationals and we we're sitting four and oh, and I was like, you know what, maybe like I am training for the right reasons. And like, that's kind of something I just always remind myself in, like from other, if I'm in the gym or if I'm on the ice, whatever it is, just like, remember what I'm training for. And like, I can be an impact for so many people across the country and hopefully, you know, around the world with things like this and like realizing like how cool that is. And I'm not just that like cover and the posters that I'll see around the club. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a really important perspective to bring Jackson. Thank you. And and I'm going to follow up on that in a moment. Um, Kibo, what were some experiences that stood out for you from, from those two perspectives? So to, to build off of Jackson's story, um, I think when Curling Canada started um, making it a priority, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and making more resources available, um, I got the chance to be part of uh, the sh the, a video shoot for uh, a video that's been on YouTube. It's been an advertisement. It's basically called Curling is for Everyone. Um, and so I got to go to the Toronto Cricket skating and curling club um and myself along with a number of racialized individuals we you know got to shoot just scenes of us curling um and and then got to see kind of the the end product of the video and, and to me it was it was empowering because it was just a you know a a video promoting the very it was very overt the very overt message you know curling is for everyone because that's what i believe um and so uh yeah lots of lots of positive stuff from there and that was it was in the middle of I think the season that was most impacted by COVID-19 so it was it it gave me hope because it was great that despite kind of not being able to compete as much or or we, we were still able to kind of make strides um yeah some more experiences but I'll, I'll save those for a second we can keep going okay fair enough um Deb for for you what are two experiences that stand out for you well, I would say my experience, like if you're talking about the duality of like an empowering moment and something where you felt a little let down, it's interesting because both of them are wrapped around the same project. So for those of you that don't know, um, obviously I'm sporting my Black Curl Magic gear and I have my broom in the back. Um, I was you know, fortunate enough to be part of the United We Curl Broom Designers Ambassadors Program that was kicked off in 2020 you know, in reaction to a lot of the events of that summer, you know, definitely a racial awakening here and abroad. Um, and I think that summer, you know, it actually was the first time I think a lot of people who knew me in my curling family, in my curling world, were like, "Woo, you know, let me reach out to Deb because I have a lot of questions and she might be one of the few people of color that I actually know well enough to ask some of them or to see how she's doing. And from that point, I think I entered this conversation publicly and I would say that some of the most empowering memories I have in recent memory are the reaction that the community at large had to that United We Curl launch, uh, to the embrace of our project, 
to the embrace of our stories, um, you know, the compassion and the attentiveness to which they were thinking about this differently. And they were suddenly shifting the gaze through which they viewed our sport and, you know, kind of coming to their own reckoning with, wow, you know, like you said, it was 10 years before you saw a person of color and it didn't even register with you. And then suddenly I think a lot of people collectively within our community had the same awakening at the same time. So those of us who were the, you know, representative tokens, for lack of a better word, within the sport, everybody kind of knew that the five people that they knew, right? So that was an interesting thing. So I was very empowered and felt very embraced and thought that was wonderful. The same exact thing, though, was that every, I think, action has an equal and opposite reaction. Some of the ways in which people have responded to that project in a not so favorable way, um, in a maybe subtle, but uh, but palpable uh, lack of embrace has actually been the source of some of my greatest disappointments, disappointments within the sport over this last three years. Interestingly enough, had I never put myself out there and participated in that project, I don't know that I would have ever been made aware of some of those less than ideal um, thoughts, feelings, and, and positions. I think it's become clearer to me. And some days I wish I could roll back the clock to where I didn't know what I don't know. Um, but what I will say is that there are some people who are very comfortable with the status quo. Not everybody is an agent of change. And I, I'm not saying it to judge. I'm just saying what I've come to understand is not everybody's motivated or animated around this idea of inclusion and belonging and representation within our sport. And to me, that's one of the greatest disappointments is that it's not 100% across the board, this great idea to everyone. And I've had to sort of calibrate the conversation for myself as I continue to walk through this space. I never intended to become a poster child, similar to what you're saying, Jason. Is it Jackson? Jackson? Um, I never intended to be the poster child that was popping up all over the place as the face of diversity, but it speaks to the, the lack of diversity that there's only five of us that they can find. So we end up in everything, right? Like the day that I know we're more diverse is the day that you see a lot less of me and the same five people, right? You'll see everyone because we'll just blend in because there's too many to count. The fact that there's still enough to track is kind of the issue. And as a result of that, I have been witness to the people who are not necessarily so animated about this project that we have and all this conversation that we have. And it's an interesting time to be an American. I will say that when it comes to things like LGBTQ rights, when it comes to, you know, the right to vote for people of color, when it comes to, you know, the right to bodily autonomy for women, whatever right you want to insert, whatever box I check, it's an interesting time to be here in this space. And interestingly enough, being part of United We Curl has helped me to see the good in people and the amount of goodwill and genuine enthusiasm around diversifying our sport, as well as the exact opposite. So I don't know if that's a very fulfilling answer, but it's an honest answer that that project kind of showed me both sides of the coin. I choose to embrace the positive side, obviously, because I love the sport. I believe in the community and I believe we have it within us to kind of really be game changers. Um, that being said, I have no illusions that this is a fantastic idea for everyone. And there's going to be barriers and, you know, two steps forward, two steps back moments. And I feel like the last three years has been a really great tutorial in what it is to be truly be an ambassador and have the courage of your convictions, even when people don't see what you're doing in a positive light. Yeah. And, and you know, firstly, the the honest answer is the important answer to kind of that, that truth telling um, so, so, so I appreciate you doing that. Um, 
and it's a really important perspective, particularly from your project as well, but also from, from the American perspective. And, and I would also add on top of, of the LGBTQIA plus perspective as well. Um, you know, in, in Canada, we're, we're in a similar position from, from the lens of, of, of the community from the LGBTQ plus community. You know, I've been busy outside of, you know, my own life and, and working and volunteering about how you fighting for the rights of, of trans and non-binary youth in my home province in New Brunswick. Um, because their rights have been recently under attack. Um, as I know, many folks here in, in Ontario at the time of recording are very concerned about similar uh, issues here in Ontario. Um, all very topical and all very concerning on top of everything else that, that we're all facing in our own perspectives and in our own, own lenses. And so that's a really important insight. Thank you. Thank you for that. Johnson, were there some experiences that really stood out for you? Yeah, for sure. Well, um, although I've never really uh, struggled with fitting in to curling um, from a social standpoint, um, as an immigrant and as a first generation curler, um, the challenges I did face were around uh, understanding my place in the sport and navigating my way through the curling community and through the competitive process and so on. And, you know, when I first started curling, um, I was uh, at a point where I was still learning English at the time. English is my second language. And uh, I was not only trying to uh, find my way through the curling community, but I was trying to also um, understand my place in you know, Canadian society as a whole as well. And um, so my the, the experiences that left uh, the biggest impact on me, especially early on, was uh, when people made me feel especially welcomed. And uh, I think one early experience was uh, my first year of curling when I was nine years old. Uh, one of the coaches in our junior program, uh, who was a competitive uh, juvenile curler at the time, uh, invited me to spare uh, for his team at a Christmas fun spiel in uh, the advanced division. Uh, now, mind you, uh, I played uh, in the novice division and in the same spiel with my team of first years at the time, and we got absolutely slapped. So uh, it was very daunting and intimidating to uh, move up there. Um, and so it was my first time uh, playing a game with and against competitive curlers, but they were also welcoming and supportive of me participating. So it uh, left a really strong impression on me. And uh, I think it was the support and mentorship of older, more experienced curlers that uh, really made a difference for me um, in my early years in the sport. Yeah, and, and thank you for that. I, I want to come back to something that, that Jackson, you spoke really eloquently to, but also Deb, you spoke to in, in, in our last conversation there a few moments ago. You know, with, with the importance of, of diversity, equity, inclusion, whatever term we want to place around it, whatever, in, in whatever context we're coming to it, um, you know, sometimes comes an air of tokenism, an air of making you feel unique for reasons that perhaps you should ought not to be unique, right? In terms of, you know, Jackson, you spoke to wanting to, to appear in curling excellence for yourself, for, for your achievements and for your accomplishments and what you were doing. And, you know, Deb, you spoke to some of the experiences that, that, that you, but also your partner had felt as well. And, and all of you touched on this a little. And I, I was just wondering, you know, uh, how how does that you know how does that make you feel like jackson to, to walk in and, and have be you know i think as deb put it the poster child for for inclusivity you know not really knowing but there's my face on there 
or, or Akibo, as you spoke to, going into a filming, and, and that might be an impactful thing that's occurring, but you were selected for being unique in, in, in like in that sense. And so I'm just wondering how that how that impacts all of you and if there's maybe a lesson there to be shared in, in how we treat that when we're approaching trying to make the sport more inclusive, if we're going to make everyone feel particularly unique in our effort to make it more inclusive in the sport, does that harm that effort or does that harm you in that effort? Hi, everybody. Future Will here, your friendly neighborhood curling for change podcast host. Just a quick disclaimer that it makes it sound here in my interpretation, like Kibo was selected for the video he participated in uh, about promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, particularly for racialized communities through the uh, video he mentions. Uh, that's not the case. He voluntarily participated in that. But the overriding point here is that, particularly referring to Jackson's case or, someone, or anyone else's, is that if you're going to be a curling association or curling club or any group or business, honestly, that includes racialized communities in your marketing, particularly to promote diversity in the sport, um, even if they're young, please do so with an actual full conversation with them about why and how that's important and include them fully in the process, as opposed to, particularly in the case of younger people, using their image rights or anything else from an omnibus waiver that they may have filled out at some point prior to an event where that image may have been taken that you've then used. Um, so just keep that in mind when trying to work on diversity, equity, inclusion, particularly in marketing. Um, I just wanted to chime in and make that disclaimer on behalf of Kibo. Um, he participated in that really empowering and important video fully with others of his own accord. So I just wanted to pop in and make that disclaimer. I hope you're enjoying the video. And please remember, do share this if you enjoy it. Thank you. And I'll get back to Old Will talking about this really important issue. Kibo, go ahead. Yeah, just kind of in the direction you're going about kind of when we're trying to make the sport um, more inclusive. Um, it's, it's, there's a lot of little things that I think um, Johnson touched on, or, or we, I think we've all touched on it of just about just those little things that made us, you know, feel welcome. Um, for, from what I've seen, I guess, as more of a experiences that might've disappointed me a bit, we're just, you know, observing, um, I was, I've been at, you know, when I was younger, it's the one day bond spiel, right. Um, and either, you know, people that I'm playing with or against, um, they had to leave the club to get something to eat just because they eat kosher or eat halal or right. Um, and there wasn't food that was, um, there just, there wasn't a lot of variety. Um, and to get through, you know, a bond spiel, you need more than a salad, right. Um, or, you know, I've had, um, I know someone who wears the hijab and going through that learn to curl process um, didn't kind of feel like they were getting um, just, just the same amount of attention in a kind of in a group just from the coaches, you know, um, going through that experience. I have two moms um, and sometimes even just talking about that with people, there's you know, people make assumptions, right? Um, so yeah, as we're transitioning, I guess, to this discussion of, you know, um how do we how do we make this sport more diverse and inclusive um there's there's a lot of little things that i think as you said will you know we might not notice as much just off the top off the surface because of how curling the tradition in curling um how it's been for a long time but that um are important to delve into so that we can we can grow this sport 
Yeah, I actually have a like a strong point of view when it comes to what you were talking about, Kibo and Jackson, and just like that, the idea for me, the way I've tried to parse it out so that I can kind of stay true to what I want to do, which is be a force for good and a force for goodwill. You know, I don't, I want to be a, you know, somebody who can stay within the positive space because I think more is to be gained that way. But I would also say it comes down to the agenda or to the, I guess, the reason why you're being sort of singled out, right? There are times when you know, you can just sense it intrinsically that you're being singled out because people are trying to check a box or they're trying to say, this is what we've got. See, look, we've got this one black person here. Or we've got this one person in a hijab. We've got one of everything, right? So look, we're diverse and it's one snapshot, one time. And what I would say is the interesting thing is if it's the same group of people that you keep putting in every commercial to show how diverse you are, but you actually know those same five people, you're actually proving the opposite. Because if you were truly that diverse, I wouldn't be able to pick out Kibo or Jackson or Deborah or Johnson, right? Because there'd be so many of us that we would be lost in the crowd just like everyone else, right? And then to the idea, I think Jackson, you were taught, you sort of touched on this. There's this other piece of being a part of the sport. And as somebody who's been a lifelong athlete in varying degrees of success, or, you know, I didn't come to the sport thinking I was going to crush it, but I'm not used to being terrible at things either. Right. So I have a work ethic that comes with aspirations. Like I said, you know, I don't just, I'm not someone who's not competitive, but I have a healthy dose of reality on top of my comp competitive nature. That said, it was a bit startling for me to get so much attention for something other than my game. And I've said this, if anyone's ever seen another interview with me when we were back in the 2020s doing the interwebs, I don't want to be the gay curler. I don't want to be the black curler. I don't want to be that chick who curls. I mean, I, I am all of those things, but I also want to be known for a girl who can throw a good rock and brush her, you know, what's off, right? Like there's that aspect where you just want the luxury of actually disappearing into the game. And if you do stand out, you want to know it's because of your talent, not because you check a box. And that is a very different thing, depending on who's doing it. You know, some people come at this with genuine curiosity and they're genuinely trying to do the most good. And then other times you can tell that it's sort of calculated and it's hit or miss. So I think to anyone who's looking to genuinely engage in this space, you need to remember that there are people on the other side of your diversity, equity and inclusion program. And you need to see the people and see the diversity of their stories because we are representatives that inspire others. And that's the number one reason that I've stuck with these projects and continue to show up in random interviews like this because I have been told many times that after seeing me on the ice, somebody was inspired to try it because they're like, finally, somebody that looked like me, whether that be my size, whether it be my giant hair, I don't know, whatever it is that my ethnicity, but the fact that my presence in the sport inspires someone else to, to find what I love in the sport is enough to keep me in it. And I, I think I will take people at face value when they show up with goodwill in the right spirit for the right reasons. I'm more than happy to have the conversation, but there are many people who, you know, kind of tell on themselves when they show up with an agenda. So I'll just say it like that. And, you know, it eventually shows itself for what it is. So mm -hmm. you don't have to go deep into it, but I do think that there's, you know, multiple reasons and we'll know we're doing well when we have enough representation. Like I said, where all of us just become nameless, you know, <laughs> and the only reason we know is because you're either on a team or you're, you know, winning a competition, you hit the podium, you know, you're hoisting trophies or something like that. No, and, and that's a, a really powerful message, Deb. Thank you. Uh, you know, 
stemming from that, Jackson, I guess my, my question for you coming from your story, if you don't mind, is if there was one thing that, you know, you spoke to walking in and seeing your image on those, those products and, and on, on in, in that way, is there one thing you wish they had done to speak with you first or to, to talk to you about that first prior to having that experience of going, oh, there I am. Right. It was was there something you wish they had done maybe to 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 speak with you on that first? Yeah, I think like and I think I'm in a different space too, because like I was coming at this from a super young age. Like I'm still learning about this. Like I started driving by myself like this last summer. Like I'm like about 17 now, but like I'm still learning a lot and I felt kind of oblivious because for me it was like I this is like my normal life of like I'm used to not having a lot of colors. So like I felt like I was confused. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, it's cool. Like understanding like, yeah, they want to put me on, but I don't think I really understood because I really didn't know. And I'm still learning about that because it just felt like normal life for me. So when I see myself in all of these, I was like, oh, like whatever, they're just using this to kind of like use me as their picture. And so I think if there was kind of one thing, it would kind of just be like, work with the person kind of before you work with the picture because that's what it felt like for me is like I would have loved to been like just made aware and like have these conversations because I think I just felt confused of why these things were happening to me when you know yeah it's great like I get to do all of this but I just was so confused I'm like okay like why is this happening but I see myself here but I'm still like I don't feel like I'm kind of proven in the curling world yet and like you know, not that like my identity isn't success, but you know, once you start, you know, being more widespread and stuff through media and stuff, it's normally because, you know, you've done stuff. So I think just if I would have had those conversations a little bit earlier and just been like, hey, is this something you're comfortable with? Because the second those pictures kind of came out, I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess this is what I'm doing now. And like, where mm -hmm. do I go from it to here? Are people going to talk to me? Do I talk to them? I'm like, there kind of wasn't any sense of direction it was kind of just made so I think just having those conversations saying hey like we think you're in a super like e-demographic right now that we want to hit and how can we work with you and um how can I work with them to help it too so I think just having that conversation and having them be a little bit more open no I think you know firstly to the line of, of work with the person and not the picture I can I can I stitch that somewhere can we <laughs> We capture that that was that was really powerful message jackson thank you thank you for that and you know i, I hope people listening to this take that message to heart as well and considering how they can work you know not just in inclusivity but with people and in, in their communities but no matter what the instance is or what the context is you know see the person for who they are right and what not necessarily just the demographic or something like i come from a from a business perspective now working in government relations, but these things happen all the time where you're working in a business and there's a, a DEI committee or something and they're looking to hit that demographic. It's like, yes, but do you care about me as a person and value me as a person? Not just, uh, Will's in the LGBTQ community. Can we get can we get him involved with this, right? Or something like that. Right? So, so thank you to speaking to that. Um, Johnson, having heard all of this, you know, from, from your perspective, you know, that you've spoken quite eloquently to, you know, was, was there... Was there something or, or that you feel, you know, you spoke to feeling as if you were the only one in, in, at the University of Alberta, for example, you spoke to that reality um, and, and spoke to that reality of moving from, from British Columbia, where you felt very at home in, in terms of your, your ethnicity and, and, and being in that area 
and then not so much now where you are now. Do you, do you want to speak to that a little bit and, and how that impacted you or perhaps what you've learned in that experience or? For sure. Well, um, I think uh, being from um, the Richmond community, um, seeing kind of a diverse curling community has always been the norm. But I think um, what really latches onto the perspectives of the average Canadian curler, curler like viewer or fan is um, the representation on the big stage and at the elite level where, you know, in Canadian curling, um, there's so little representation for minorities and you know it's very much a white dominated field and so I think that latches obviously that latches on to people's perception of what curling looks like and for me um, there's one time where I was having a conversation with um, this uh, this lady in my neighborhood uh, when I mentioned that uh, that I'm a curler she just looked me up and down and said well you don't look like a curler and it made me think, like, what is a curler supposed to look like? And, you know, obviously, uh, Will, you mentioned, you touched on the fact that you ne you've never seen, you know, a person of color curling until you went to the U18s. And um, I think uh, also, like, just the representation on the elite stage on TV plays a big part in that as well. And um, although, you know, Kibo Jackson, you guys touched on, you know, feeling like you're being used and Deborah as well feeling like you're being used as kind of a token for representation. Um, I think it's so important still because it challenges the idea and the question of uh, what is it, what is a curler supposed to look like? And so even if, you know, we are one of the few, um, you know, representatives for different minority groups, um, it's still an important part in changing kind of the image and idea of uh, what the Canadian curling community is supposed to embody. And if I could just add like a postscript to that, I think I agree with everything you said, Johnson. I just want to make sure people understand that the key difference for me is that I feel like I have agency in the discussion. I opted in, which is not the same story that I was hearing from Jackson, right? So there's a big difference between agency and being invited to the dance and saying, yes, I want to be part of this discussion. I accept all that comes with that because I opted in. I'm a grown woman. I made the choice versus being pulled in and then looking over your shoulder going, how did I end up being the face of X, Y, and Z? I think, like you said, you have to remember that these conversations impact more than just, you know, the outcome on the other side. It impacts the people that are actually being put forward. And not everybody's ready to have that conversation. Not everybody wants to be the ambassador of diversity, right? So you have to make sure that when you put someone in that position, they're prepared they're aware and that they have agency to opt in and not be forced into that conversation. Yeah, that differentiation is important and that's not something I've really thought of. So thank you for bringing that up. For sure. And, and that's that was a really powerful part, part of our conversation. That So so thank you all for, for sharing that. Um, you know, have, I'm going to say this very plainly, have you experienced racism or prejudice in curling? Um, and how, how did that impact you? Right. So perhaps Deb, if you wanted to speak to that a, a bit to, to start. Yes. I, all right. I'll say this. The way that I've experienced it is mostly through 
unconscious bias and microaggressions. I have personally never been on the receiving end of what I would call blatant smack you in the face racism within curling, at least not to my face, right? So if it is happening, it is not something that I've witnessed in terms of like, you know, the the brutal kind of racism, like the over the head, but I have had a number of microaggressions and I don't often think that the people committing the microaggression are well-versed. Um, I try to come at this whole conversation from a place of compassion. I don't think if I didn't occupy that space, I wouldn't be able to continue to to be in this role and to you know interface with people. It's just like my natural, I guess, um, slant in the world is compassionate candor. I will tell you the truth, but I'm gonna try to understand why. And if you wanna engage and get better, then I'm here for it. And if not, we just kind of go our separate ways and I'm not gonna let them steal my joy simply because they don't want me to be here. I have a whole other reason for being here. So I try to remind myself of that. But I would say the microaggressions that I experience are things that I don't even think people would realize. Like when people walk up to you and it's like, oh, well, you know, I can't believe you don't know this song or um, or I, I've given this example a few times. I've been at my home club where I've been a member for 10 plus years. And I'm always assumed by people who don't play on the nights I play or people who don't know me, um, you know, for the tournaments I've been in. I'm always the one, you know, at the glass that people assume is the visitor not that they assume as the member, right? There could be me and a bunch of white folks standing there watching the game. I could be window skipping is what we call it here in the States and explaining the game, talking about the shot. And like, well, what I would do is I definitely would play the tap here, you know, obviously conversing about the game as someone who is initiated, but I'm always assumed to be the guest um, more often than not. And it's odd. It's at my home club. It's been at other clubs and at other clubs, you know, I don't know exactly why, maybe because they do know I'm a guest and they don't know me, but it's a little more striking when it happens in your home base. Um, things like that, things about the way that I play, you know, little things where people will try to make alliterations. And sometimes it's not racism. That's the microaggression. It's actually sexism, which I would say this board is built on a patriarchal foundation. And that shows up for me as often, if not more often than other types of microaggression. So it's not overt. It is there. I would say it's it's not the overwhelming dominant part of my experience in the sport, but it is there and it does happen. And I will say there's a generational component to it very often. Um, I'm not trying to throw biases out there, but I definitely feel like people in a different generation slip more and are less sensitized to have certain conversations um, and maybe don't try as hard to modulate and make the culture one where everybody feels seen and feels like they can be their whole self. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, for sure. And, and thank you. And just Deb, quickly, can you describe for people who may not know what the term means, what, what microaggressions means for, for you? Yes, microaggressions are those little, I guess, like death by a thousand little cuts. They're not things people would typically think are negative, but when they come through the lens of a bias or a stereotype, like when people say things like, oh, you're so articulate and it's a surprise, right? Like black people in my country anyway, are very tuned up to the fact that what you're hearing in a statement like that is, wow, you're articulate. I thought you were going to talk like, you know, you you were going to mumble or you weren't going to be very well-versed. You weren't going to be smart or you weren't going to speak in a certain way because you're a person of color. That to me is what a microaggression would be where it's, it's the spirit behind the comment, not the comment itself. Like, Oh, shocked. you're so you're really, you did that. Like, it's not something they would be surprised if I had blonde hair and blue eyes, they wouldn't say, oh, you're so 
to kill it, you know, <laughs> or they wouldn't be surprised by it because that's the expectation. So that's an example of a microaggression. Google's your friend. It has lots of other better examples than that, but that's kind of what I'm talking about there. No, th thank you for that. Because um, a lot of people may not know. And, and sometimes yeah, no, a, 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 a microaggression for me may be incredibly and wildly different to a microaggression for someone else, depending on, yes. of course, where, you, where you're coming from or what yeah. lens that's coming through. It's usually driven by bias, right? So when bias shows up, it shows up in the way of the assumption that you make comes from a group prejudice and you're attaching it to a person just because it's how you see the group. So insert group here, right? <laughs> I hope that helps. <laughs> For sure. No, I, I think that that's really helpful. Um, Johnson, have, have you experienced uh, similar things to what Deb was speaking to or, or racism in, in curling? Or I have not actually. Um, fortunately, I think I come from a place of privilege where, you know, as I mentioned, um, you know, curlers at the elite level um, kind of latch on to people's perception of what curling looks like. And, um, you know, for the East Asian community, um, it is, you know, now quite well represented on, you know, the Grand Slam stage and you know, on the world curling stage. And so, um, you know, seeing, um, you know, an Asian curler like myself isn't, you know, as far out of the norm as, you know, as like other minority groups. And so, uh, no, I have not experienced any uh, racism or prejudice in curling, and uh, I'm fortunate to have uh, to say that. No, and 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 still a really important point to be to be made there, right? In terms of visibility in, in curling, in particular, and particularly at the competitive level, right? So that that's an important point. Um, Kibo, have have you experienced any instances of prejudice in, in curling or racism? For me, um, I haven't experienced as much direct racism, um, but what I have been privy to is kind of um, the process that, you know, we introduce curlers into our sport all the way to um, through getting into leagues and, and stuff like that. And um, from a firsthand or secondhand basis. And so kind of some of the things, it's a lot of these little things, right. That, that I've um, observed. We, I think it was um, either it might have been Deb that touched on, you know, tech, or Johnson taking care of, you know, the people, right? So if we're going to try and integrate um, a lot of people from diverse backgrounds into curling, um, that's that's step one. Just getting people interested, right? Getting getting people more avenues to be interested in the sport involved is step one. But step two, well, how do we keep people wanting to come back? Um, and so, you know, to me, I observe that a lot of our learn to curl programs, even a lot of our junior programs are volunteer run. Um, and that's, you know, wonderful. A lot of our, and then you even go as far as saying a lot of our, you know, coaches in junior curling, um, or coaches of, you know, learn to curl, uh, leagues are volunteers. And so it's fantastic. We have such a caring community, you know, that are people doing this out of the goodness of their heart, but at some point it, there isn't, it, it can you know, sometimes uh, I've, you know, seen friends, junior programs at the clubs they grew up at would shut down just because the person who's running it stopped doing it anymore, right? So if if there's a way, you know, to strengthen those programs, um, I've been kind of trying to figure out, like, where does this funding come from, right? But if we could strengthen that, the structures, the systems, um, and we could make for stronger programs um, just to keep people learning, even. Like, I've, I have, you know, I've talked to people who they joined curling with their partner and their partner's an experienced curler, but, and so then they, you know, they did the learn to curl and then they started, you know, playing in leagues with their partner, but they hadn't, they, they said that they, they hadn't had 
a partner who was that good or knowledgeable about it, they they wouldn't have been able to develop really, or it would have been a lot harder to to get better. Um, so what that tells me is is if we can strengthen that process of just helping people along the journey of um, once they start, you know, helping them get better, wanting to come back, it's probably going to be a bit more about that structuring. Um, and, and that's kind of step two in the process from as you know, it's from just coaching people and learn to curls to all the way to competitive coaches and juniors. There's all kinds of, um, all kinds of ways that you can reach this. And it's another comment about how our sport is, you know, trying to keep things, um, a little more inexpensive, which again is a great thing, but it's, it might be something that we have to think about if we're going to try to um strengthen it a bit and the the i don't mean to go on for a long time here but kind of the benefits of this won't only be seen by integrating you know more people of diverse backgrounds into curling it's going to be it's going to make curling better as a whole because it's going to make it it's going to make it for better for everybody who's already in it and and coming in so that's a big benefit to kind of hunting down these problems or these ways that we can improve i guess yeah, I, I mean, I would just like to piggyback there and say I agree with that. And I think in the three years that I've been involved in being an ambassador and doing outreach and both here in the States and also in Canada, and obviously I'm not as well versed in the Canadian, you know, approach to this, but I feel like I've learned a lot from being around the United We Curl family that I'm privileged to be a part of. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is shifting the emphasis on what how to get people invested and in, and in, I guess, engaged in curling. And for so much of the work, it's about recruitment, not about attraction. And I think that that's a very important de delineation because I think the sport has to become attractive. And what I know from myself is the reason, like I said earlier, I stay with this because I know that being a face that people see, you, you see yourself in the sport. So then you're more likely to be attracted to the sport. And when you're in the sport, if the culture itself is one where people can not only be included, but can truly show up and feel like they have a space where they belong, I think that's the retention, right? So much of it is about the act of, of dragging people in and recruiting them, but not about a culture that makes them want to stay. And I think that the inward facing culture is the thing where that's the long, that's the long game. I think it's the harder game because it's not as specific. It's not as exact. It's a series of small actions, not one big maneuver where you just dump a bunch of funding and say, you know, black people come curl or, you know, X, Y, Z person come do this. And then they get there and, I don't know about how many clubs you guys have dealt with, but I don't think anyone ever does the exit interview, like for lack of a better term. When people try it and they don't stick with it, do we ever ask why? Because I think we would learn more information about why people don't come back, not as much about why the people who stay. Um, because I know for every open house we do, you know, not everybody who tries curling loves curling, no matter what stripes they wear, right? But understanding why some people might be more or less likely to come back until they latch onto the sport could have everything to do with the culture of what hits them over the head when they walk through the door. I don't know that to be fact. I'm just saying that, you know, culture is a big presence in our sport and the way that we do what we do. I love many of the traditions, but some of the traditions I could see being exactly the barrier that we're trying to, to cross. So I think attracting versus recruiting is the right way to look at this. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, there's a really important point in there as well, 
Deb, in terms of there's a difference between, you know, as we spoke to earlier, checking that box and the image of diversity and inclusion or the ideal of diversity and inclusion that businesses or sports or larger organizations or societies hold kind of uh, stereotypically and the actual important change of culture and the nature of, of how your club is welcoming and what environment have you created, right? Mm-hmm. Um, have you asked communities that may not be represented in your club why they aren't there, right? Or what the barriers to access are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was at the Business of Curling Symposium in, in Sackville a, a few weeks ago, and that was one of the questions I spoke to in, in this instance in, for, for youth in the LGBTQ community. But, you know, someone mentioned well, there's a LGBTQ youth group that meets, you know, at a community center. And I was like, well, why don't they meet at your center, at your curling club, right? If you're having trouble getting youth into your curling club, have you spoken to them? Right. Have you asked them what it might take for them to, to be interested in curling or, or to your point about those exit interviews that Deb is, what was the barrier or maybe what was their different experience or that, that they may have felt that turned them away from curling, right? Mm-hmm. No matter what that is. Um, and I think sometimes we shy away from those difficult conversations um, and that prevents some of that cultural or, or that environmental shift that has to happen and in curling to be a more inclusive space genuinely and impactfully rather than just, you know, saying we completed our DEI plan that was part of our strategic planning this year at the board of like, you know, Mm -hmm. um, so Jackson, just with, with all of that, is, is there something that you would like to add to this conversation we've heard from, from their perspectives, but do you have a perspective you want to add to this as well? Yeah, I think like, um, for me, kind of just like growing up, like as I said, like before, as like I was adopted, and like obviously both my parents are white, and it was just one of the things, like you know, to be made aware of, just you know, walking to the rink or whether I'm driving at night or like in stores, it's like it's kind of things like don't wear your hood in stores, don't bring backpacks, you're like things like that, just things you try and avoid so you don't have to get caught because you're not. Oh, your parents aren't always going to be there to save you. You're going to be on your own at things like that, and just you know, being made aware of that and um kind of just one experience I had and this is kind of probably one of the only ones like um I remember it was with a teammate a few years ago and we were kind of talking about oh what we were going to put on our jackets for the year and it was it was right after um like when we had um like the stuff with George Floyd and like that 2020 year and stuff with residential schools coming out and he had kind of mentioned I just remember we were like DMing back and forth on Instagram and he mentions like oh like we should put residential schools and stuff like to make awareness is like yeah that'd be a cool idea and i think again when you're a junior team and kind of wherever you are you do have to be careful what you're putting on your jackets with your sponsors and like i thought that's a bad thing to do i just think you have to be careful in ways that you do it and so i remember putting on as like yeah i think that's a great idea but i think if we're gonna you know share one issue that's happening in the world right now we need to do others as like oh so let's put things in like the Black Lives Matter and things like this, because that's not the only issue happening right now in Canada. And that's infecting our, you know, our team, our communities and things like that. And I remember just the one comment he made was like, oh, well, yeah, you know, like so many people had died with these residential schools, but it was really only one guy for, you know, what happened with that. And so for me, I was kind of like, ah, I wasn't kind of like expecting, I was like, oh, we still have to curl together in like two months. So we're going to like, do this in a calm way because I was like oh, I probably could say a lot of things that I 
would regret in about 20 minutes. But, and, you know, so just the things like that of realizing not everyone's going to have the same perspective just because it impacts you. And I think realizing things like that of like, okay, like just because like, yeah, this is going to impact me and this impacts this person. It's like a sensitive topic of like, okay, this is like obviously something that a person wants to share here, but they don't want to share here. And like, kind of like the conclusion I said, I was like, you know what, we're not going to get into this. We're just not going to put, you know, things like that in our jackets. But I said, like, I was like, let's make this aware on like of our social media. Like we have a platform to do that on our personal ones. We've got a platform to do that with our teams and things like that. So I, that was kind of like my one instance. I just mean like, others kind of just with like the bias of like if I had like a dollar for every time I got asked if I played basketball another sport like I'm 6'2 I used to play other sports too like if I I'd be super rich right now but yeah just kind of the little things like that and I mean like one cool thing that's kind of like came out of this all is like people don't understand it's like if you're black and like things like that the skincare you gotta do to keep your hair and like things like this and like I'll like they walk into the bathroom and they're like what are you doing I'm like well let me show you so like you know people have got to learn from playing with me and like being at events with me is like this is what it looks like at night like I've got like things going on with my hair they're like this and this and that and things like that so you know through all the like negative that's happened it has been kind of a cool experience too that you get to share this with like people that you're super close with as well that kind of gives a more deep dive into yeah we both curl but this is what I got to do to like make sure like I'm still like personally ready and like my skin and like hygiene and things like that so yeah Oh, and, and, and thank you for that and I think that's that's a pretty significant experience to share and, and learn from for folks and I guess my, my question to that is, and, and I faced a, a different experience in terms of someone had used a slur beside me on a sheet that was directed towards the LGBTQ plus community. And I had a similar moment to decide, do I, as you put it, say some things I'm going to regret <laughs> or try in whatever way I could to make it an educational moment, right? Of how can I bring this person to a different point of view? Right. And, and sometimes, sometimes people are in a place to do that. And I think, you know, it's really important to acknowledge sometimes we're not in a place to do that. It's not our, it's not our responsibility sometimes. Um, but, but that, that's a, a really, a really powerful experience to share Jackson. And, and thank you for that. But also a perspective that a lot of folks, you know, I can say for myself, I'll put myself in the place again of, of my own privilege of saying, I certainly would have a similar reaction to be like, Oh, I had no idea in terms of that's the routine you go through. And from that, hygiene. I wouldn't know. I'd have, I'd have no clue because I haven't, I hadn't been exposed to that, but in understanding that and learning about that and having a conversation about that, well, you can, you can come to a different point of view on that. And that extends to some more difficult and more extreme conversations in terms of what we, what we experience and what we face, but it also, as you very humanly put it to that day to day for you. Right. And, and that's, that's crucial. Um, I think if I could just add one little thing there, something that what you guys are talking about reminds me of is that when it comes to being a part of a, a historically excluded group, you know, people have to learn about us. So one of the additional things that we do, um, you know, just by by being in a space or taking up a space and being on a team is we become an inadvertent educator for people, you know, and I, I think some of us are fine to do that. It, it's just but the idea that 
you know, so many people aren't well versed at what black hair care would be, right? Because it's not something that they have access to. But I've I have enough people in my life that are of different walks of life. And I know enough about the white experience because it's the dominant experience that I know how you take care of your hair. Like I can make some like, and I say that, you know, tongue in cheek, I can make assumptions because I am fed that a daily steady diet of being around and aware of what that population, because so much of everything we see is through that gaze, right? Everything is through that lens. That's the focus. That's the target. So that becomes the standard. And then we become the people who we do it differently. Therefore, it's something for people to learn. And it reminded me of something I said all these years ago, like three years ago now, next month on the very first conversation I had on this topic is that if the only Black people you know are the people that you play on this team with or, you know, you don't know any close personally, make some friends with people of color, because once you become friends with people, these are things that you learn about other human experiences. And it's, and then we are not so exotic, right? We're not the teachers of everyone because you know enough people from different walks of life that these are your friends and the way you speak to your friends and are curious with your friends is different than putting someone else in a position to be your teacher or your educator because that's another way of making us feel othered even though it's probably not intentional I don't know that people come at it's like I want you to feel othered but the fact that you even have to explain that puts you in a position where you now become very aware that you're different and I'm going to teach you about my difference, sure. But now I realize like, oh, that's right. That's not a conversation we have with everyone else. And those are those moments where it's subtle, but that's when you become really aware that you are part of the, you know, excluded group, not the the dominant group. And it's that little extra bit of energy that we have to bring to the table where we're not prepping for the game or we're not mentally just thinking sport, sports play and, you know, teamwork. We're thinking about how we also interact with this dynamic of people who may not be like us. And so we don't get to have the shorthand and take the shortcut. Just something to think about, food for thought. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, in kind of melding, as we kind of come to the conclusion of our conversation, just thinking about what we can do going forward and what others can do going forward to make curling clubs in the community itself and the sport at large more inclusive of BIPOC communities in particular, but generally in terms of, of the diversity we see in the sport, um, what what folks can do or what clubs could do to, to improve that in, in future. And, and as we spoke to, not just improve it for the sake of meeting a quota or meeting a goal or meeting a target your board has discussed, but to genuinely move to a more welcoming and inclusive environment and culture um, that has some longevity to it. And, and is there to stay and, and shifting that. Um, and, and before I kind of in, engage all of you, I just wanted to maybe get some, some of your sense as well of, sometimes I feel as if the welcoming nature of the curling community that many of us speak to or have experienced or has welcomed us in, in different ways at different times, oftentimes comes from a place of ignorance. And by ignorance, I don't mean that in the negative connotation, I mean from a place of not knowing. And I'll use the example of, you know, Debbie spoke to a generational difference earlier. I'll speak to all of us know the really kind old man who's at the curling club who might not know anything about you or who you are or how you identify or who you love, but loves you and accepts you for who you are and gets to know you and eventually goes, I heard. 
and I've had this experience more times than I can imagine of someone going, so Will, are you, are you, are you in the, and I'm like, yes, yeah, I'm in the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And just like, no commentary, no judgment, just because they've known me and come from that place of just not knowing the fulsome of who you are and that identity and, and, and that kind of um, viewpoint or, or how you uh, identify yourself or, or who you love or what have you. Um, and perhaps speaking to some of that culture shift as well of making curling not necessarily just a welcoming place from that position as it may traditionally be sometimes, but to that welcoming and inclusive nature that we're all working towards and have spoken to here. So maybe um, Kibo, if you wanted to start. Yeah, so kind of shifting this to, to what what everybody can do. Um, it it seems like a lot of kind of breaking down the things or for, you know, those among, like people who've been in curling a long time, um, like it, stuff as little as making sure when you're hosting a, a learn to curl that everybody has a name tag so that, you know, especially with names that we might not all be as familiar with, you know, we can really try and pronounce people's names. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Going from stuff like that all the way to just, I, Deb brought up this great kind of analogy of the exit interview, which is, I had thought about trying to draw on people's experiences before, but um, that was a, that was a good way of thinking of it, especially if we're going to try to keep people um, wanting to come back and if we're going to want to make the sport more welcoming well we should maybe talk to the people that might not you know um, so so and with a lot of the kind of the traditionalism uh, in this sport it's important to really kind of take a second look from from a different lens um, and and with that comes you know trying to continue to educate ourselves um, we're talking about uh, for example the term BIPOC or racialized people, which is important when we talk about it's, you know, how we can kind of go at this topic, right? But when we break it down, really, it's important to understand that Black people and Indigenous people and people of color um, have different experiences, and it's important to understand and um, the, the differences um, and educate ourselves on that. Uh, yeah. No, for, for sure. And, and, and thank you for, for speaking to that. Um, Johnson, did you, how, how do you feel curling can kind of go forward and move and shift that culture and making it a more inclusive space? Yeah, when I, when I think about um, how to make a sport of curling more inclusive to, you know, minority communities, um, my thoughts aren't necessarily centered on the BIPOC community specifically because uh, because the challenges I've faced um, have more so been centered around navigating um, the complexities of the sport and the culture and the curling community as a first-generation immigrant curler. And so my ideas, I think, touch more on uh, supporting people along the start of their curling journey, kind of like how uh, Kipo has been uh, mentioning. And, um, and my take is that, you know, traditionally, uh, curling is a sport that's typically passed down generations through family, right? And so I think the question comes down to uh, how can we attract and retain uh, first-generation curlers as a whole? Uh, because I think that, uh, you know, as the demographic of first-generation curlers increase, um, the curling community should naturally 
um, become more diverse to a point where uh, the demographic of the curling community, uh, at least here in Canada, would be representative of the demographic of the Canadian population as a whole. Um, and so as a first generation curler, I think the greatest challenge that I personally faced, uh, and I think a lot of people uh, who have been gone through my experience can relate is, uh, is overcoming the barriers of entry to the sport and namely, you know, having to deal with, you know, very few formalized learn to curl programs, um, no formal um, mentorship programs for new curlers, not that I know of. Um, and so it's difficult to navigate um, your, your way through the sport. It's very much self-initiated. And it, that's difficult when, you know, you're like 10, 11, 12 years old. And so, you know, whether that's, you know, uh, making the transition from uh, learn to curl uh, clinic to a full-time league, if you're a recreational curler or to, you know, trying to find a volunteer coach so you can enter in your first regional playdown. And, you know, you know um, coaches who, you know, at one point were complete strangers to you, which, you know, were challenges that, uh, one of the biggest challenges I faced uh, when I first started competitive curling. Um, and to kind of add a bit of perspective to this point, you know, on the other hand, uh, curlers who, you know, if they were born into a curling family, uh, they grow up with other curlers in the rink. Uh, they have connections to uh, make or join teams as they grow up, and they have family members who coach them through juniors. And so they essentially start out with a support system uh, that allows them to thrive in their curling community, ones that you know uh, many of us don't have. And so when it comes down to attracting and retaining first-generation curlers, I think it, we need to think about um, what we can do to give them these types of support that multi-generational curlers have um, and give them the connections and resources so that they too can thrive in the sport, whether that's competitively or recreationally. And I think when we put the pieces together, um, I think the answer comes down to uh, creating a more formalized support and mentorship system for first-generation curlers, especially uh, newer youth curlers, uh, so that they have coaching and uh, mentorship resources to access. And I think this would make staying in the sport uh, more appealing, especially to uh, members of the BIPOC community uh, who may need this type of support to grow and progress in the sport. And maybe um, as a result of that, there would be less uh, need or opportunity to have to do you know, exit interviews. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. For, for for those listening, I, I was just giving Johnson some applause there, just because that was that was really well said. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and I think a really important point for people to take forward and a really concrete solution that clubs, in particular, and in our curling associations can learn from, right? Is, you know, and when people walk through your door into your curling facility, you do not know where they are coming from. You do not know what they are experiencing. You don't know what is happening in their life, period, writ large, right? There are so many unknowns about anyone who comes through your door. And to show them the support that is necessary to make them feel welcome in, in the community, but also to maintain them to be growing and, and contributing members of that community, it takes a village. It takes mentorship, it takes kindness, and it takes empathy, and it takes placing your biases on the table to have those conversations and to allow people to come into the space and then genuinely welcome them. Not just, hi, are you willing to pay for a new membership? 
are you a new member today? Would you like to, we have an introductory rate, right? Like, you know, genuinely making those efforts and understanding that, you know, this might be a curler in your curling club, but it's a person going through things in life, right? And, and having things that are impacting them and changing that perspective. And, and thank you for that, um, Johnson. That was, that was really well said. Um, Jackson, go ahead. Yeah, I think like, um, it's, it is a tough thing. Cause like, as kind of Deb said too, it's like, you know, you kind of just want to meet that quote and you want to recruit as many people as we can. But I mean, I've helped with a ton of learn to curls and I've seen some of these people like two, three times and I'm at the rink every day and I never see them again, like the things like that. And I think it's great that we're having these, you know, learn to curls and things that are, you know, more like in Alberta, we had um, kind of this one thing go out and there was free learn to curls for everyone and you know like people are being able to like drive you there if you weren't able to you know have access to transportation I think those things are amazing so it's you know it's cool to see that you know slowly over time more and more of these things are happening but you know again it's tough because you know you people have to you know accept and they have to acknowledge that our sport is changing with the world and our world is changing and you know, we're not in old ways anymore. And so, you know, I think it's just, again, like educating on people like, hey, like, this is a real issue that we don't have these people and, you know, like podcasts like this and like that give me like a space to share and everyone here, like a space to share, I think is amazing. And just like, you know, for our next generation, kind of just really being able to educate them and get this out to them because like truthfully, yeah, there's, you know, a lot of people that like we're the next generation in 30, 40 years, like, this is these are who we're growing up and who we're growing around with so you know you know starting at that age to acknowledge them and say like hey you're here and you do this and you know you do come from a place of privilege or maybe you don't like and it's tough to know when you're younger like I had zero idea when I was like 10 years old I'm like oh, I just like do whatever I want and like I'm in school like that was it but yeah like really just being able to you know give this to the younger generations because really this is what the future of the sport is and yeah, I mean, it's a super cool thing, again, what we're able to do here. I think this is probably one of the best things you could do and, like, you know, through as well with social media because, yes, you know, we want to get to an older generation too because we want, but we also have a target audience that we are trying to hit. And I think just kind of being careful to, like, you know, not be so on the nose of, oh, well, we're, like, lacking diverse, so you're black, so you have to come try curling. You're like this. I'm like, I remember reading this post as like, I don't know if this is the right way. Cause I like, if I'm walking on the street and I don't know about curling, that's probably like the vibe I'm going to get is like, you guys are lacking and you really need some help here. So like, why is it going to be me? But, you know, just allowing people to be able to come, but, you know, not putting the expectations on them that because you're a person of color, because of this, we need you to come. And it's because we want you to be here. It's not a need. So yeah, that'd probably be my reasons. No, th thank you for that. And, and, you know, super, super important points all around. And Deb, what, what do you think we need to do to, to make curling a more inclusive space for, for everyone? Well, I mean, I don't think I can add much to what Johnson said, because I think he nailed it. Um, I think that looking at this through the paradigm of first generation curlers, right? People who don't have the inherited legacy, of curling in their family and making that on-ramp something that is sustainable 
is probably the smartest thing we could do, right? Think about it from the perspective of someone who walks in cold, who likes the sport, but doesn't have a network to kind of teach them and build it through. I was fortunate when I was a, when I walked into my club that I latched onto a few people who were wonderful about, you know, kind of handing the hand-me-down version of the sport, like teaching you what you needed to know and being patient with you. And we had a, a pretty good infrastructure for bringing us on board, but I would say that on-ramp and then that sustained interest and sustained support, sustained coaching. So many people think of it through the financial barriers, which I think is probably the wrong first step. It's more about the opportunity. And then in doing what Johnson said, I think we should always consider the following two things, which is politeness is not the same thing as inclusion and that access is not the same thing as belonging, right? It's just because you are nice to me, <laughs> thanks, well, just because you're nice to me doesn't mean your environment's welcoming. So politeness doesn't include me necessarily. That's not enough. And access to the sport, or because a lot of people will say, oh, anybody can come, no one's stopping you. Well, it's true, no one's stopping me, but there's also not anyone encouraging me or providing that mentorship or providing that sustained on-ramp so I can navigate my way through the sport. And then one day I'll be the person who onboards the next group. That passing you, passing it down through the generational component is difficult in terms of access for people who don't, who didn't come up around the sport. So I think that Johnson is spot on, but I also think we need to remember that culture piece, which is just because you let me come to your club doesn't mean I feel like I belong there um, or that I feel included. It takes more than just opening the door and be like, check that box, you know, you got here. And I, and to your point, Jackson, I have seen some initiatives where they telegraph the idea that we're just targeting BIPOC people, like, you know, and that in and of itself is off-putting, right? And so I think we want to be more thoughtful and I'll just end with this. I think that I don't think this is an easy thing to do, um, but neither is curling. And somehow we all managed to stick with that. Um, but I think I'm in the, the learning space as much as I am an advocate and an ambassador for this, you know, from my perspective, I too am learning to be an ally of other types of people, not just within curling, but in the world, you know, I think someone here said like, not all black experience is the same. Not all indigenous experience is the same. We all come from different walks of life and have our own versions of a similarly understood story. And I think that we all need to be humble enough no matter where we are in the spectrum to remember that we're all learning as much as we're teaching. And that goes for people of color too, you know, like, or people who are straight people trying to be allies to gay people or et cetera, et cetera. I think that if you remember that we're all trying to be allies or that we hope are that we're all trying to be allies, we can all learn as much as we teach. And that to me is the, the key to the, the process is that consistent learning, teaching, learning, teaching improvement cycle. Thank you. And I know we have gone long and I am not sorry because this conversation has been incredible. And I, I really do. I'm really grateful for all of you for sharing everything you have as one last thing. <laughs> I swear the last thing I'm going to ask is just for everyone, one lesson you would like to share or impart upon those listening or those watching that you would like people to remember coming out of this conversation, well, what would it be? Johnson, I'm gonna start with you. Sure, that's a, that's a big question, Will. And um, 
And when I think about that, I think uh, the reality of it is, unfortunately or fortunately, um, you know, building connections and having strong social networks is such a big part of curling, um, more so than any other sports, I think, at least the ones that I've been a part of. And um, I almost hate to say it, but it's a necessary part of succeeding um, if you're a competitive curler, especially in the junior ranks. And so in that sense, you know, the sport is not an even playing field for first generation curlers. And, you know, unfortunately, BIPOC curlers are disproportionately affected by that. And, um, you know, as a competitive curler, uh, competitive junior curler myself who entered the sport with no connections, uh, it was a massive challenge, not only um, being able to find a team that wanted to compete at the same level that I did, but also finding coaches who were basically strangers at one point uh, that were willing to invest their time in me, um, a kid that they do not know. And so for multi-generational curlers, um, you know, who grew up with uh, these kind of resources and like to say luxuries, um, whether that's uh, having family members who coach them through their early years of juniors, or even um, being able to kind of identify and relate to the Scottish heritage that um, the sport is, you know, deeply embedded in. I think it's important to um, kind of recognize the privilege that comes with gaining that head start in the sport um, that many others aren't able to have because, you know, from a competitive standpoint in juniors and juveniles, it, it really is a head start that um, not everyone starts at the same you know, starting point. And so I think by recognizing that, I think it will um, kind of be easier for people to understand uh, inclusivity, I think, uh, not just as an idea, but um, really as actions they can take to find the right ways to better um, support um, the BIPOC community and, you know, um, curlers of marginalized communi communities uh, in their in their area and their clubs. Thank you, Deb. One lesson that you would like to impart on our listeners. Hmm, there's so many. Um, I would I would leave it at this. I try to close most of them with something people can take away and do you know, actively do, right? Instead of just more thinking and and that, that's bad. Um, I would say if you have never spent time as the only in a space where people aren't like you, you should do that. Because I have been advised many times about how easy it is to be me, right? It's ah, simple, you know, how simple it is to walk through the world and put yourself in places and show up in places where you aren't expected. And then to be the best, most confident, you know, high performing version of yourself, you know, and those people that are telling me what my experience is like have never been in a situation where they've been the only woman or the only person of color or the only gay person or the only uh, differently abled person, insert label here, right? And I would invite everybody to do that at least once before you advise another person how simple and how welcoming and how you know easy that should be for us to do. Because I think it goes to that old adage, walk a mile in my shoes. And then maybe our conversation can start from a different place, right? A place of genuine understanding where you're no longer assuming that you understand what it's like to be me. And I think that's what gets us in trouble too, is the assumptions that we know others' experiences instead of investing the time to actually get to know people that don't look like us. And my last thing is if you don't have friends that don't look like you, make some real friends, people that you go places with and eat dinner with and share meals with, or, you know, really interact with, because that to me is the key to the kingdom. 
the more people you know that don't look like you, the more experiences inform your thoughts, your actions, and then the way that you set the tone in places where you show up on behalf of yourself and on, on, on those underrepresented people and voices. Thank you, Deb. Jackson, one last lesson. Yeah, I think for me, like, it's kind of a quote, it's like, alone, we can do so little and together we can do so much. And just kind of, you know, as a space, like no one's going to do this alone. And it's going to take a lot of time. But the more and more we have things like this, you know, whether how much of an impact we make, like, you know, at least we're trying here. And, you know, yeah, it's kind of like my thing for me. It's like, it's always been like, I'm not here to see how many like new people I can like get in the club. It's not about numbers, you know, it's just trying to make an impact. Like if this only gets out to one person, but hey, I helped that one person, like that's the job I'm doing here. And so, you know, like, I know that, you know, I can put myself in spaces like this and say like, hey, like, yeah, if I'm going to be a face, I'm going to try and make a difference. I'm going to try and have a voice. So yeah, I think it's just, you know, being accepting and like being willing to just learn and like hear other people out. Like this isn't an easy topic. This isn't an overnight thing. Like this is going to take a while, but you know, I'm excited to see in like 10, 20 years, like, you know, and I'm older and things like that to be like, Hey, like, I just remember when I was a kid back when I was 16 and to, you know, see the differences we can make now. So, yeah. Thank you for that. And, and Kibo, our, our last lesson for the day gonna be tough to do justice to what everything's everyone set up to this point but like you know we just off the bat taking from what Deb and Jackson have just said our diversity is in our strength and so uh you know the more that we can learn the better prepared that will be because of all the different experiences that we can connect to um a lot of the stuff that Johnson's talked about about you know his experience as a, a first generation curler um, it really resonates with me because I relate to it. Like I experienced a lot of the same things. Um, and so I thought when, you know, Deb was talking about that sustained support, um, this, you know, concept of mentorship, we've talked about how, you know, that's made us feel very, um, that's been one of the highlights of our experiences being mentored and supported and kind of that. So just, yeah, as Deb said, that continued um, and sustained support just beyond, you know, um, getting people interested, right, and coming out um, and continuing um, how we can how we can keep people going on their journey, really. Um, and what, you know, Jackson was talking about at the end of how it's not, this is not going to be an overnight thing. Somebody said it takes a village to, to raise a curler, but we're trying to raise so many curlers here, right? So many first generation um, curlers. So, and so many new curlers. So um, if we can uh, adapt the mindset that Deb mentioned, that continuing teaching, learning, teaching, learning, and keep going at this, um, that's, yeah, that's the best way I can do justice to what, what the path forward is. Well, thank you all for everything in this conversation and your insights and your experiences and for sharing yourselves and, and, and your lives with us for a little bit and with me for a little bit and trusting me to have this conversation with you. It has been a really empowering and factual conversation for me um, and something that I really hope makes a difference for those who are listening or who are watching now. Um, my only lesson out of all of this that I would impart to anybody is that if this conversation reached you, have it in your space. 
if you think this conversation is impactful or that this conversation is important, why not have it in your space, right? In your club, at your association, in your community, with your friends group. I've learned a lot in this conversation alone and I have so much more to learn in so many ways. But with conversations like these, it's a starting point to bring yourselves to each other's shared space and to have that important conversation to start that dialogue. And you'll be shocked at the value of what that starts and the change that that can bring along and how that can change and begin to change the culture in your little community, no matter how small, no matter how big. And so have these conversations and go out there and start to change the face of curling in that way. So this has been Curling for Change, a limited series podcast that I am incredibly grateful to Curling Canada for allowing me to host and to be a vehicle for these conversations of which are so important. And thank you to the World Curling Federation for providing some support for us to be able to do this. This has been the conversation about BIPOC curlers changing the face of curling. And I hope that it has reached you. And please do share this with those you know. Do like it. Do subscribe if you're on YouTube or elsewhere. And I hope you'll come with us for the next conversations. Thank you. <laughs>